0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Eastern European Studies. My name is Hugo Elaine, and I'm your host. Today we'll be speaking with Gail Stokes about his newly revised and updated book, The Walls Came Tumbling Down, about the path to the revolutions of 1989 in Eastern Europe and their aftermath. How are you doing today, Gail? Fine, here you go, thanks. I really enjoyed reading your book. Thanks. And so uh, I guess we'll start out by talking about the intellectual journey that got you to read this book today, or write this book, excuse me.
1: Uh, you're talking about the original edition that came out in 93. Yes. So, uh, in the 1980s, I was a member of an organization called the Joint Committee on Eastern Europe. It was a committee of the uh, ACLS and the SSRC and uh, had six or maybe ten, people in there that talked about issues and gave out money from uh, from, uh, Title VIII and so forth. And I met a lot of very interesting people there and got it into my head that uh, something was going on in Eastern Europe. Uh, I also started teaching some courses uh, here at Rice and realized that there was a need for some a book of readings, perhaps, that people could use in courses like this. So I started to put together some readings and eventually made a proposal early in 1989 to Oxford University Press for a book that eventually became uh, From Stalinism to Pluralism, a documentary history of Eastern Europe since 1945. Uh, It was a fun time because... uh, when I first sent that into Oxford, sort of over the transom, I didn't know anybody or anything there. I got a little form letter from them that said you're and then it had crossed out "manuscript" and so forth, and it circled "proposal." And uh, they said, "We will be in touch." Signed the editors. So I didn't think much was going to happen there, but eventually it did accept the book in the spring, and in the summer of 1980, a friend of mine from England proposed or asked me if I would be willing to work on a book on current Eastern Europe, and I decided I didn't want to do that, but to put the idea in my head of making another proposal to Oxford, and this one I called The New Pluralism in Eastern Europe, uh, so I made that proposal, and I made some grant applications, and I got them in by about October 1st, 1989. And lo and behold, on November 9, 10, the Berlin Wall collapsed, and we had the Velvet Revolution and so forth, and suddenly this became a hot topic. I don't mean to say that I predicted any of this. I didn't, but uh, I happened accidentally to get in on the front end. And so I got a fellowship to go to as a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, a great, great place to work. And Oxford did accept the proposal. And so I spent 1990, 91, and into the spring of 92, working on the book. uh, And it came out in 93.
0: And then you decided to update that with
1: the events? Well, I was – they – the, the initial book being written in nineteen ninety and ninety one of course didn't couldn't contain very much about uh, what was going to happen there were some not really predictions but uh, i you could tell that i was fairly optimistic uh, about the future of eastern Europe there but um there was one so I did have one chapter about what happened in 1990 and 1991, and uh, I, it was my favorite chapter title. It was The First Two Years of a Long Time, mm-hmm. which did hint that I thought things were going to mature and progress, but I couldn't really write about that because it hadn't happened yeah. yet. And I was asked, Oxford's, my editor at Oxford asked me, oh, I don't know, 90 six ninety seven ninety-eight right in there sometime if I wanted to update uh the first edition. And you know, I decided no because the, the the countries that did join the European Union weren't in yet. Things were still a mess in Yugoslavia and I didn't really know what to say. However, about two years ago a new editor uh called me and or wrote me uh email me and said, would you be interested now in an update? And I thought about it, and I decided, yes, you know, I think this could be useful in, in courses, so that my book really begins, takes a running start to begin in 1989, goes so up to 1989, and it would be very useful to have some more chapters on what happened since. So I decided, okay, well, let's do that, and I I spent two years also then working on the revision, but this time as an emeritus professor, which means, you know, you you come to work late, you go home early, and some days you don't go at all. (laughs) So it was a much more leisurely kind of uh, effort. But still, there are three... uh, I took out the chapter called The First Two Years of a Long Time, which has got some good stuff in it, but it's no longer really relevant, and put in three new chapters. One of them on the new... European order, where Soviet Union collapsed, Germany was united, and the European Union matured. And then two further chapters on what happened in East Central Europe and in Southeast Europe. uh, And because there is a certain amount of closure, not counting the former Yugoslavia, there's a certain amount of closure with the coming into the European Union of those Central and Southeast European countries, oh yes, that
0: definitely has been a, a, some sense of closure, and of course the end of Milosevic is a broad another kind of closure. And yes, exactly. Right. Uh, now, as far as this book goes, it breaks actually a long tradition of writing about Eastern Europe uh, or uh, communist-era Eastern Europe by starting in nineteen forty-five. Um, and
1: I'm just curious, you know, even your documentary. Well, oh, actually, uh, the original manuscript did start, if not in 1945, it started earlier than 1968 with a couple of chapters that were, uh, seen by my editor at the time as more prologue and make that made the book too long. So basically, she said, "Look, you got to you have to make a shorter manuscript." So I condensed those two original chapters that were in the draft or in in the uh, manuscript that I originally submitted. I well, frankly I cut a lot of that a lot of that out and uh, made made an introduction more broad, uh, broadened the introduction but at the same time condensed it so you're, you're right that originally I did think of starting that way but as it worked out uh, I think it worked out fine this way well yeah I mean, it's, just, it's an interesting
0: different way to look at the history of Eastern Europe uh, by starting with I mean what, what anyone who had taken a class in Eastern Europe will, I mean, is told is a, a defining moment 18, 1968 and the end of you know the end of reform communism
1: um, yeah, I, I break uh, the post-World War II era in, a period in Eastern Europe into four, uh, I don't know, elements, I guess, or phases. And the first, of course, is just simply the imposition of Stalinism. It's not that the Eastern European countries were uh, opposed to Stalinism when it came in. They were uh, ready, in a way, for some kind of uh, collectivist action, but... It basically, Stalinism was imposed, so that's, that's the, uh, by force and other means. So that's the first phase, and the, the next one I, I call revisionism, in which uh, it was still believed by many people, uh, although fewer, and fewer as the years went by, but still by many people that state centralism, state, uh, state-run economy, centralized planning, and that sort of thing could work. And they had reason to think so because with their extensive strategy of development, they put previously unemployed or underemployed people, women, peasants, to work in these new factories they built. So in the by, uh, by 1960 or so, there was a lot of optimism among uh, Eastern European communists that they were on the right track. But during the 60s, they hit kind of a wall because they had employed all these people and now they if they wanted to they had to they had to go to the intensive strategy that is to add technology. And there were countries in the world who in the sixties did started to do that. South Korea, Malaysia, Singapore, places like that, who entered the world market and became very successful at it. But this second period of revisionism ended in 1968 with the imposition of the Brezhnev Doctrine and down of the Prague Spring. So when Brezhnev and his allies thought they were saving socialism by putting down the Prague Spring, they were actually killing it. But this led to the third period, which I call the period of anti-politics, in which People asked the question, as Leszek Kolkowski did, uh, how can we have any hope in what appears on the surface to be a hopeless situation? In other words, any kind of opposition or freedom of speech, press, elections, second parties, any of that kind of thing is going to be put down by the Soviet Union. So how can we possibly have hope for the future? So this is anti-politics politics moment during normalization in Czechoslovakia and so forth that lasted for maybe 10 years. And finally, I have the fourth period, which is, I call, the return to politics and solidarity is the major component. This and so is the kind of reforms that began to edge in in Hungary in the 1980s. uh, So by the time we get to... Nineteen eighty-nine and nineteen ninety, we have the return to full scale. Well, I don't know if it's normal politics, but some kind of politics in Eastern Europe.
0: What well, you talk? Let's talk a bit more first about the anti-politics and the whole emergence of that kind of thinking. I mean, you mentioned Kolakowski, um, but this is sort of the era we, you know, where you get the, um, you know, the Charter seventy-seven. Yes and uh you know some of some of the developments in, in Poland as well although i mean i I always find it hard to separate politics when you've got core very much participating in some political actions uh in the, as much as they're supporting workers who are on strike, which was a, is a kind of politics but oh I mean, uh, I
1: mean there's no question that solidarity in particular whatever they're ideology goals uh or what they thought they might be doing in terms of getting an independent union are in fact a political entity they as the 80s go by in particular they uh claim or believe to represent society on one hand against the state and power on the other and in politics is about power of mm-hmm. course and they were in fact competing for power with the state, although they claimed always to be seeking simply an independent union. But an independent union fundamentally undercut the role, the leading role of the Communist Party, as you know. Yes, yes. Uh, Why don't
0: you talk a a bit more about um, the Hungarian story? I mean, because it made the headlines in a way that Hungary didn't I mean you could read about changes going on in Hungary uh in the New York but Times it, if you
1: was under the the, it was definitely under the radar but and there there was a certain I think this was one of the faults of uh, the first edition of this book that I put a lot of emphasis on opposition movements particularly those in Budapest, that came to be called the urbanists. That is the ones uh, that published Beseler, for example, and Janos Kisch and people like that. I, I think I overestimate their importance compared to what were called the populists, who were more uh, provincial, more Catholic, more nationalist, and so forth. But it's important to have the, that element the anti-politicians and those folks in the picture. But uh, there's uh, something else that I think I didn't emphasize quite enough. And uh, during the 1980s, the Hungarians underwent both economic reforms and what I would call political or party changes. And I think their history of economic reform, they always were among the leaders in reform of centralized Economies, But for 1980, they introduced, uh, they permitted agricultural cooperatives to go into business. And originally, they did things, well, agricultural cooperatives did things like uh, sell seeds or uh, warehouse crops, that kind of thing. But it, very quickly, they realized they could go into other kinds of business like computer power supplies, let's say. So there was a development among these agricultural Coop so what we would might might call actually capitalist enterprise in nineteen eighty two uh, Hungary joined the i m f at the World bank. This was quite different than the Soviet containment system into a soviet uh socialist system. They started tentatively enter enter the world economic affairs in nineteen by nineteen eighty five uh some of the uh, socialist enterprises have started issuing bonds, and a little bond market developed in Budapest. And by the mid-'80s, they recognized the second economy. They let small shops lease from the state, you know, the uh, automobile repair shops and restaurants, those kinds of things. They permitted co-ops, not just agricultural co-ops, but co-ops of less than 100 persons, um, act like regular businesses and they had something called work partnerships where specialized people like engineers that worked on uh, precision metal working equipment make their own little cooperatives within the enterprise and sell their services and they created an innovation fund and enterprise fund and a number of things like this they were in other words very different than certainly Czechoslovakia, Romania, Bulgaria, East Germany, those places. So that by the time uh, 1989 and the big changes arrived, they had some experience in entrepreneurship and those sorts of things that characteristic of a uh, market style system when we're quite ready to enter in in a way that some of the other countries were not. And then second area in which there were reforms, already by the mid-80s they had elections in which there were sometimes multiple candidates so that by the election of 1985 they had a more representative, let's say, legislature, let's say Mexico, for example, with a few oppositionists. And it was an amusing aspect of that when somebody wanted to vote no in the mid-80s. The late 80s in the Hungarian parliament, they realized they had no mechanism for recording a no vote. They had to make up a new mechanism to, to get that. Uh, and anyways, not to go into any great detail, but the regime itself started to reform. The reformers like, uh, Veselniers and, uh, for example, started to edge out the old timers. So, Qadar was out in May 1988, and uh, there was a new law on associations it was called in mid-1988 which permitted people to associate for political purposes, and which led to the creation of political parties. And they were trying to deal with their national, one of their most important nationalist type issues, that is to say the Hungarians and other countries, particularly in Romania, and they wanted to regulate immigration, so that refugees border status and so forth. So they accepted the international protocols on refugees, and in March 1989, informed Gorbachev that they were going to start taking down their border uh, fences and so forth with uh, Austria and other places. Uh, Gorbachev didn't react. He said... he, he simply said, Oh, well, we're softening our regulations too. He didn't say, No, you can't do this. This is impossible or anything like that. He was, Oh, okay. If that's what you want to do, go ahead. And on May 2nd, they started actually cutting the barbed wire. And you know, in the, by the summer then, East Germans were escaping across the border into Austria, increasing the pressure on East Germany. So by June 1989, they started some round table talks with the, representatives of the various parties that had emerged and the unions and the church and so forth and conducted what has been called the negotiated revolution that by September they had agreed not to call it the People's Republic anymore but just the Republic of Hungary and to have elections. So all of this happened before November 9th and 10th, that is to say before the fall of Berlin. While these things are not particularly well known but suggests to me uh, one of the main points in my book, and that is the revolutions uh, in Eastern Europe were the product of the people of Eastern Europe. And I include in this not only the anti-politicians, the solidarity people, and the ones who got out of the street in places like Leipzig and Berlin and Prague but even to some extent, the regimes, because the regime in Hungary ended up reforming itself by mid or late 1989, and even Jaruzelski in Poland eventually put his future on the line, so to speak, by agreeing to a roundtable discussion with Solidarity, which resulted in the famous election of June 4th, which the communists. Almost completely lost. So I think in Poland today, in particular, this is a very dangerous thing to say because there are still very volatile opinions in Poland about the role of Jaruzelski, even the even the role of Solidarity and Muenza, who are seen by some on the right as having capitulated to communism, or in Jaruzelski's case, having been a very negative character in Polish politics, but in my opinion it's the regimes also who lost confidence in themselves, and in a couple of instances not in Romania, of course or Hanukkah didn't change naturally, but in Poland and Hungary they did and they were part of the process
0: yeah, I think, I think that's a very important statement. And even, I mean, yes, you will find people like the Kaczynski, well, the one left, Kaczynski, yes. uh, her brother, uh, who were, um, who, you know, definitely have no time at all for Jarzelski as a reformer. But my uh, adopted Polish grandmother, the woman I would visit periodically when I was in Poland in 85, 86, okay, I you know last time I spoke to her, she said, you know, she, well, she said, you know, as she said before, I was born against the Bolsheviks in 1916, and I'll be against the Bolsheviks my entire life. But she <laughs> said, you know, she, she said on the one hand, the Soviets were not going to invade, but she, I think, honestly uh, accepted his claim that he thought they would uh-huh. um, when I spoke to her. So, I mean, there are people who see who can see some of that. And, you yes. know, of course, and we have to always remember in that case, you know, he had seen what happened to the polls in Uzbekistan, and, which is that other experience, a lot of other polls did not see, so.
1: Yes, he, he experienced that
0: himself. And so that changed. I think um you bring up an interesting point, though, because I was struck, you have some relatively kind words to say about Husak when he comes to power. I mean, you're, I'm, sh- uh, You're not that you're, Pro Husak, exactly. But you say he was a smart guy. He saw, but he saw which uh, who was going to be buttering his bread, and he went well, and accepted it. But why do you think then, if he was a smart man, he was unable to see a way out for uh, a similar way out for Czechoslovakia?
1: Well, there there are a lot of smart people who uh, are also uh, opportunists or ideal- have ideological blinders. Uh, we see them in politics. All the time. Uh, Husak, uh, I think, did you know, I like very much what he said when um, he came back one time from a visit with the president after he said, We came, we saw, we lost. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he knew they lost. Uh, but, uh, he was, he was, I think, a rigid man and uh, he had, uh, the faith of, um, of the tried and true communist and, he put those into effect. Being smart doesn't have a lot to do with that.
0: Okay, so you basically accept the line that he was a rigid person as well. It wasn't that he. Oh yeah. He just got locked into someplace and was unable to see. I mean,
1: he's. Uh, he, no, I don't think he was. He he was not looking to the future uh, as what might happen eventually or anything like that. He was conducting a normalization of. Uh, of the present.
0: By the way, speaking about uh, going going back actually to Poland and Hungary, uh, who both, I mean, uh, Poland also ends up joining the International Monetary Fund. Why do you think that, you know, I can see why the Soviet Union would let Poland do it, because it was an economic basket case. What was the reasoning for, uh, why didn't they stop the Hungarians? You know,
1: I don't know. I can't answer that question uh that was it happened during uh the very end of Brezhnev's regime and the beginning of andropov Chernenko right in that whole period there and i i really don't know what the soviet thoughts were on that subject well
0: i guess that's that's those of you who are listening out there looking for a project out there i think that's a good one for someone to look into uh so uh the revolutions of '89 uh, uh, are pretty well ingrained in our memories now. Uh, do you have any thoughts about it, looking back at them?
1: Well, you know? I think there's different ways to to look. At the time, of course, it was seemed so clear and obvious that these were revolutionary events. They're not revolutions where there are beheadings and the guillotines and civil wars and and that kind of thing, but this was an enormous change, and it happened so relatively peacefully that it was it was totally astonishing. So, I think focusing on Poland, uh, there was an emphasis at that time on civil society uh, asserting itself in the face of power and. Even recently, Timothy Garden Ash has said it was Europe's best year—the only time people actually overthrew oppressive regimes successfully—and this this is thrilling. And it's no wonder that there was a uh, over not uh, not overemphasis. I almost said overemphasis, but that there was an emphasis on this heroic aspect of, it. and I I personally find. That's still very thrilling and very stimulating, but looking back now um, the revolution it seems to me was in the daily life of individuals Today, there is quite a outpouring of nostalgia almost throughout eastern Europe, and it's not nostalgia for long lines and boring propaganda and all of that kind of thing. But under the communist, this is something that people often forget. They say, oh, communism is bad. It must have been terrible. Life was awful living under communism. Well, no. People lived ordinary lives. They had to deal with teenagers. They looked for promotions. They had love affairs. Their their aunt died, and they had to deal with that. You know, all the normal human events happen. And once you got a job... You kept the job. Once you got a flat, maybe it took a while, but once you got a flat, you kept the flat. You had vacations that were taken care of. You had free health care. Maybe it wasn't so good, but nevertheless, you had that, you had that right. And you had maternity leave and and so forth. Well today you don't have that. You have a job and maybe you don't have a job when there's a downsizing. You don't necessarily have free health care. Your pension is under question. uh, The rent might go up on your apartment and you have to move. I mean, life is a lot less stable, a lot less certain. And that's where I think the revolution has been felt. It's in daily life and in the daily Attitudes that people have. You still have to deal with the teenagers, of course, and your aunt dying and the promotion and all that sort of thing, but it's under a little more, or maybe, maybe even a lot more pressure. Uh, and to say what the significance of 1989 was, there's oh, some bigger pictures that you can see today that were not as visible maybe in 1989 and 1990. For example, Let's say you're in the third world. What is the impact of 1989 on you? Well, one interpreter at least has said it's the end of traditional imperialism and colonialism, that the comp- competition during the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, a place like Angola or Nicaragua uh, and other places, was a remnant of an old-fashioned idea of imperial control and colonial control. But that now, with the end of the Cold War, the end of the Soviet Union, is ended finally the last vestiges of that attitude. It's not that the developed countries are uninterested anymore in those parts of the world, but they're doing it through international entities, the World Bank, the IMF, Thousands of non-governmental organizations. It, it, it's a different atmosphere. And this is one end of the Cold War impact, a result that if you're in another part of the world and not Europe, uh, might seem to be the most interesting, most important thing to you about what happened in 1989 and 1991. And another one is if you're from the, Euro- if they're looking at the European point of view, uh, 1989, might be seen simply as a milestone in the most important political development of post-World War II Europe, and that is the elaboration of the European economic community into the European Union. Looking back from today, 20 years after 1989, it seems almost linear from... The coal and steel community to the Treaty of Rome and so forth, right up through until the Lisbon Tr- Treaty of nineteen of two thousand and nine, the growth and elaboration of the European Union, in which nineteen eighty nine op- uh, can be seen as a major milestone for opening up the expansion of the union into a new part of the new part of Europe, and you could, I think. Write the history of the European Union, which 1989 becomes a milestone or an episode in that process. And there's also another large-scale way of looking at 1989, and that is the most significant worldwide phenomenon of the last 30 years has been globalization and the information revolution. And the collapse of the Cold War, Or 1989 and 1991 opened up that whole part of the world to that process that in a way that they had not been open before. So once again, this could be seen, it could be seen as a milestone in that worldwide process. So I'm from 20 years later, there are other ways to look at 1989 that are not focused specifically on, you know, Poland or uh, Romania or something and, and what has happened in their daily life. But if we think of it as a revolution, I think that's where the revolution occurred in daily life.
0: Well, yes, uh, getting back to, I, I not even looked into this, but you know, one of the fixtures of my dormitory when I was living in Warsaw was the, you know, the African and the... Uh, uh, Middle Eastern students or a number of people from Iraq. Uh-huh. Um, and there was a you know i was I was there the year uh, of the bombing in Berlin and the bombing then of uh, Tripoli. Uh-huh. and uh, there was a you know there was a big march that was staged in protest to American aggression. And I don't uh, know you know w- what the state is as far as africans and people getting cheap educations in eastern europe i suspect it's not
1: no it's, i don't i don't know what it is either
0: but uh, that that certainly changed too i suspect um uh, of course oh, the other odd thing is the, the the sudden flourishing of uh vietnamese immigration uh which you know they were already in there as guest workers uh, in Germany, and then but then moving into Poland and stuff in larger numbers, and the, with all I the Chinese, the- all yeah. the Chinese restaurants or Vietnamese restaurants <laughs> that have opened up in those places now, uh, which is a, a, another side of globalization. Uh, we've talked about the happy part of those revolutions, but uh, the revolutions, uh, of course, w- w- we'll move to Romania later. But I want to talk about the place where things really went wrong, and uh, that's Yugoslavia. And, of course, that's really, that is, if I understand your specialty, if I recall correctly, originally. Originally, yeah. And what what lessons do we have from that? I mean, was there, uh, where did things go wrong there?
1: One of the uh, most important positive aspects of Tito's victory In 1945, was their policy of brotherhood and unity. That is to say, each of the constituent peoples got their own Republic, Macedonia, Montenegro, and so forth. And, uh, they were supposed to operate under the overall, overarching ideology of socialism, eventually worker self. Management. So, Tito actually thought that it would be not a bad idea for people to develop their own ethnic solidarity, but that they would be contained within the ideology of internationalism and uh, socialism and so forth. Well, of course, socialism didn't work out for them, but the development of national sensibilities did. Underneath, first, underneath the surface, in socialist Yugoslavia, and at certain moments, like in Croatia, 1971, though they burst up to the surface. But Tito, who could deal with any issue in which he took a uh, personal interest, put those emanations of uh, national uh, sentiment down, so that when he died, they were there, and they had self-managed socialism had actually encouraged the development of independence, quasi-independent ideas in each of the republics so that when he died and was no longer able to put his hand on whatever interested him or whatever he thought was dangerous it didn't take very long, especially in Slovenia and uh, in Serbia for the emergence of real nationalist elements and Milosevic, who Milosevic was really not a nationalist, although he used, I mean, fundamentally, ideologically, viscerally, but he used nationalism, particularly a sense of injustice about Kosovo, to raise himself up to power and to maintain himself in power. And he was able to generate a lot of heat and very little light uh, in Serbia from 1987 to 1990, and he scared everybody else. In Croatia, without much experience in elections, they elected in 1990 a nationalist of their own, Vanya Tujman, uh, who was not particularly well-suited to a multinational environment that they had in Croatia with a significant number of Serbs, both in Krajina and in Zagreb itself. So you had two leaders who were not very interested in uh, what I would call a politics of accommodation, and in fact quite the opposite. And I think these leaders, along with a couple of people like uh, Karadzic in Bosnia, they a heavy responsibility for the disasters that struck the former Yugoslavia in 1991, 92, and 93. Uh, it was a a failure of leadership. They purposely invigorated national enmities and used them for their own purposes, and uh, they they bear heavy responsibility for the bloodshed at all.
0: Well, yeah, I I I think you're. I mean, you know a lot more about it than I do, but I, I you know I, I think you're. I agree entirely. At the same time, there, to a certain extent, there was fervent ground. When I was in Berlin in nineteen eighty-seven, eighty-eight, uh, I was became friendly with a young Slovene Croat who had grown up in Germany and was studying at uh, the university as well, and. Um, I can't remember which side of his family was which, but that's neither here nor there. He was at that point doing. He had a, uh, I think, a Slovenian flag in his in his room, not a uh, not a Yugoslav flag. Yes, and uh, he was doing everything he could to avoid military service because he was certain that they were going to send him to some place like Macedonia where he'd be beaten up as a uh, uh, as an upati.
1: Uh, so North yeah. Slav, who and such. Um, and well, I think I that was quite true. In the, by that time in Slovenia, there are a, a number of issues and controversies. One was the so-called Mladina case, where the youth magazine Vladina had accused the army of various things, and. The editors were put on trial in it. Brought out an enormous amount of um, national enti- uh, enmity because the army was perceived as being run by Serbs. There was a language issue of whether they could speak in the army Serbian or or Serbian or uh, Slovene, and there was also a concomitant emergence of. Uh, civil society in which a a lot of the things that we now more or less accept as normal, like punk rock and uh, gays and that kind of thing, certain kinds of music and graffiti that lent a vigor to Slovenian society that was not the same, certainly as in Macedonia. and uh, the party there also Entered into it by encouraging or willing to go along what they eventually called the secession, not secession, it's disassociation. From they basically, they basically put it to Milosevic either we'll have a real association of states in Yugoslavia or we're gonna, we're gonna leave. And, uh, Eventually, Milosevic said, okay, go ahead and leave.
0: What do you think about this thought as far, when we talk about, you know, both Yugoslavia and the Soviet Union as, uh, you know, as nominally federalized states, one much more truly federalized, uh, the other, uh, you know, more titular, uh, we see a pattern where the, the most talented in the Soviet Union tended to make their way to Moscow. Um. Whereas in a place like Yugoslavia, where the republics were given more power, do you see that the, the most talented tended to stay in their own republic rather
1: than oh, try to make their way to Belgrade? Absolutely. Uh, yes, I think that's quite so. Except those uh, necessarily involved in the federal government, who, uh, but they still kept a foot in their own in their own republics. And this is one of the great things that I think that has happened in. Eastern Europe since uh, 1989. If you were a Hungarian, what you, and you were a very talented, uh, either in, in any entrepreneur or whatever, you ended up in Budapest. If you were in Poland, there were several places you could go, but Warsaw was the center. Now, with uh, those countries being part of the European Union, you can go any place. The, the the possibilities that are tremendously open. And if you look nowadays at the big international organizations, you'll see Eastern Europeans in important positions everywhere. If you're involved in government work, the sky is the limit today. There's all kinds of uh, non-government organizations also, not to mention Business, all the way from the famous uh, Polish plumber up to the head of major international organizations. So, the opportunities for for youth, or for the most vigorous elements—not just youth, but the most vigorous and entrepreneurial and ambitious and aggressive elements in all these societies—has uh, the opportunities have just multiplied enormously. I think this is one of the most important invigorating and positive events for for these countries and for Europe as a whole, of the whole uh, process that led these countries into the European Union. Of course, that's not so much the case in, uh, in Yugoslavia, with the exception of uh, Slovenia, who is immediately and purposely redefined themselves as a Central European country instead of a Balkan country, and successfully, you know, made that stick.
0: Yes, there. I you probably saw it uh, at the time in about 1990. Uh, there was, you know, I, I think I would see it late at night. Uh, there would be some guy, you know, saying, you know, about you know, talking about investment opportunities, and they would t- tell you um, which either you know, Slovakia or Slovenia. Uh, both <laughs> countries in Eastern Europe, which one is ripe for, uh, uh for investment? It may have been 93, because I think they didn't mention Czechoslovakia. It was just Slovakia. But yeah, the, the thing about the, the draw of the center, there was a, there's a movie I saw back, oh, oh, Miss oh, tw- uh, we're probably, uh, 20 years ago, more than tw- uh, 20 years ago, because I was still living in, in the New York area. About, um, it was a retelling of, I think, the Educa- uh, education sentimental done in uh, Hungary by Hungary, uh-huh. which is all about this guy trying to make his life in the center, in Budapest. Yeah. By contrast, today, and I can't speak so much about Hungary, but Poland, of course, one of its problems is a brain
1: drain. I think that's uh, true every, everywhere. I know in Bulgaria, Serbia, for example. I know it's. I know through Bulgaria, one of Bulgaria's main problems is uh, its population loss. Its population has sunk dramatically, and this this is in part because of losing some of the uh, Turkish people, but it's also because of people, well, young people, leaving. And and I know in of it right at the early part of the wars, Belgrade in particular, lost a lot of young people. My old friend uh his son is of course living in Switzerland.
0: Mhm. Yeah, I have uh, friends of uh, I met a, a playground friends of you know, my son, son had a, they had a son uh, about my son's age. And uh, you know, they were architects and they left and uh, Yeah. And you know they had a whole circle of friends, uh, of course, you know, uh, with similar experiences. And uh, actually, Bulgarians I know about in in uh, the area, uh, the neighborhood I used to live in, I know about four or five Bulgarians.
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, there is something uh, about this process that I'd like to mention, if I may. There is a sense among many Americans that. Ronald Reagan is responsible for all this that happened. You know, he called the Soviet Union the evil empire, and he introduced SDI, Strategic Defense Initiative, or Star Wars. He uh, gave that famous speech in 1987, photogenically set just before the Berlin Wall, in which he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And of course the wall came down and a lot of people give him credit. Uh actually Reagan was much more original than the people around him who remained Cold Warriors right up till nineteen eighty nine and beyond and somebody like Dick Cheney remains one to this day. But Reagan actually took Gorbachev seriously, realized that Gorbachev was something different, something new. And he was willing to talk to him. And there's a wonderful book about this called The Rebellion of Ronald Reagan by John Mann. Right. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, but Reagan one of the reasons I emphasized those events in Hungary or Solidarity, and you could if you wanted you could talk about the Leipzig uh, gatherings, and the people on the street in Prague, and of course, the whole revolutionary events in Romania, It's I emphasize those to show that it's the people there and, the regi- and sometimes even the regimes there that made this change, that we had nothing to do with it. And it's not to denigrate Reagan or anything, it's just... It's just the fact. And this has, this is interesting to me because it lends, uh, it helps you think about the position of great powers in the world. Great powers cannot and do not always make events to fit their own agendas. The small countries can have an impact. We're seeing that today in the famous Arab Spring that we didn't really anticipate, and it has nothing to do with Islam. It has to do with this sense, as these events in Eastern Europe did, the sense of humiliation that people feel in the modern world when their dignity is is affronted. And those anti-politicians and solidarity folks bring that Brought that to the surface, and I have here a couple of quotes. If you don't mind, I'm going to read. Oh, them. please, please. Uh, in 1975, Václav Havel wrote to Gustav Husák, the president, his head of his Czechoslovakia. He said, "Even if people never speak of it, they have a very acute appreciation of the price they have paid for outward peace and quiet." the permanent humiliation of their human dignity. And in 1978, in his great essay, The Power of the Powerless, he said, Under the orderly surface of life... uh, Oh, excuse me, let me start again. Under the orderly surface of the life of lies, therefore, there slumbers the hidden sphere of life in its real aims, the singular, explosive, incalculable, political power of living within the truth resides in the fact that living in the truth has an ally, invisible to be sure, but omnipresent, this hidden sphere. Anything that touches this sphere concrete will inevitably speak to people. And this is what happened in 1989. Something did touch this sphere. People didn't get out on the street yelling, Deutsche Mark, Volkswagen, and so forth. They got out on the street and killed things like freedom, democracy, and those kinds of And that's what's happening today in the Arab world. yes. There are economic issues, and the economy's not working properly, a lot of unemployed and so But that's important but secondary. It's this sense of humiliation that people feel when they're being constantly told what they can do and what they can't do. The Solidarity Program in 1989 said this. I find this quite inspiring. He said, History has taught us there is no bread without freedom. What we had in mind was not only bread, butter, and sausage, but justice, democracy, truth, legality, human dignity, freedom of convictions, and the repair of the republic. I find that quite uh, inspiring, really.
0: Oh, well, so that was an inspiring event. That
1: was on the Solidarity Program. That was...
0: For the June 4th elections, and uh, that, that was... A, no, that
1: Nineteen eighty. Oh, that was the nineteen eighty.
0: Oh, I'm sorry, I thought I misheard 1980. you. Nineteen eighty. Yeah. Um. Uh, actually, to bring back to a point you said earlier, I remember speaking to Chesswell Milosh uh, when he'd come to the college I was getting my undergraduate work at. Uh, hearing him talk about the era of you know eighty eighty one as an era where people were truly free. Um that and we i think we tend to forget the extent to which uh, in 1980 solidarity could could as easily be understood as a left-wing movement as a right oh, yeah. well, as a more cent- centrist there, there, and right-wing there
1: were, there were and there remain critics who maintained that
0: and so you know when when he was talking about that free it was that freedom that you know, i also remember overhearing and uh rather bizarre conversation and a train. I was, uh, I think I was heading back to Poland after a a visit to Western, uh, to West Germany, and there were two Germans, one Eastern, one Western, talking to each other, uh, circumspect, I think the one from uh, East sure Germany more circumspectly, but, uh, the other guy saying things, like, well, yeah, I mean, over in your part of the country, you know, there's less stress on the work and all that. And, um, we've now, we, we got the stress. Everyone yes. has the
1: stress. Yes, that's, that's, uh, what they got. Um,
0: the, uh, you know, if we, if you don't mind, uh, we have, Tended, uh, I mean, when you've written a book that covers so many countries, it's so difficult to get to everything, uh, particularly when it, uh, so many things happened in, if not two years, uh, but in about 30 years, it's still a, a big 30 years. Yeah. Um, let's talk about Southeastern Europe, give it a little, uh, time to itself as, uh, here. Uh, you know, talk first about the extent to which, um, uh, Socialism was accepted in those countries, at least uh Bulgaria with less oppression, but even to a certain extent Romania Romania, and then the difficulties they've had in coming out in the you know, particularly in issues of corruption, perhaps. Uh
1: the harshness of the dictatorship in Romania has Poison, poison their public life in a way that's very hard to overcome. This is something I would keep in mind for the Arab Spring events. It's, it's very hard to start democracy from scratch. And one of the main aspects of a stable democratic society is a, is a stable working system of justice. And in Romania and to a certain extent, Bulgaria, they have not been able to overcome the idea that the courts are the property of those who are in power, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's proven very difficult to get any action when, even when people are caught red-handed in obvious corrupt events. There's, there's different types of corruption there is this small-scale daily life where you have to pay the doctor a little something to get in to see him or the dentist or the plumber or over and above what they're supposed to get. And that's daily, or the, the policemen, you know, who are arrested for going through the stop sign or something. Then there's the, the large-scale corruption that takes place in the top. And there, there's a lot of money floating around out there from the European Union and those energetic people who are well connected have found ways to to get hold of it. And it's very difficult to stop. And this is the main complaint that the European Union has had about Bulgaria and Romanian both. They've even they even stopped oh half a billion dollars worth of credits to Bulgaria a couple of years ago. When they got fed up with some of the shenanigans that were going on there. People who get a high ranking people who get arrested in Romania for, for corruption find that they're able to game the system and get things put off and constantly, uh, new investigations and so they, they end up never actually being prosecuted. So it's a difficult problem and I'm not sure uh, except that in the long run you hope that things can improve.
0: Although you seem to suggest that, if I recall correctly, I didn't note it down, uh, but that even Ilyescu was, while certainly tolerating an awful lot of things.
1: There's one thing that Iliescu did that was very good, Uh, maybe two things. And the first was when he was defeated in the first, uh, in the second post-1989 election in Romania. He simply stepped down. You can compare this to what's happening in Albania, for example, where nobody steps down without the most incredible controversy and so forth. Or Milosevic, who tried to stay in power even when he lost elections, but. Uh, Iliescu stepped down. Of course, he returned to politics later and got re-elected at a later date. But one of the signs of the democratic regime is when the power party in power loses, they simply stepped down. So that was a good thing that, that he did. And then another good thing he did, probably not consistent with his personal beliefs, was while Romania was a candidate for... European Union, in his formal capacity as president of Romania, he he apologized for the Holocaust in Romania and said that it was a blight on Romania's history and made all the proper sounds. And they established a commission on the Holocaust. Holocaust is supposed to be taught in schools and so forth. It doesn't mean that anti-Semitism is over in Romania, far from it, or that it's Holocaust is taught in every school or whatever. But the official position of the government now is opposed to anti-Semitism. And this is a huge change in Romanian political culture. Maybe over time it will have its impact.
0: Yes, well, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that uh George Soros was regular, and this was before the British press started pillaring him uh for uh you know his efforts in Eastern Europe, including uh giving money to uh, uh to opposition in Romania or to the um the, I can't, the, the, soft, you know, the open society, open society. <laughs> and various kinds uh, yo yeah. you know, you, know, you get you get these sinister sinister lines like and you know, uh, no gift is really for free, and uh, pointing out, you know, his Hungarian name, and of course, also hinting in various ways about his uh, Jewish...
1: Oh, well, uh, there are are some extremely nasty press. uh, Press press that in the United States or in Western Europe would probably uh, be suppressed because of their... The, the vitriolic kinds of nationalism and anti-semitism scandalous kinds of accusations and claims
0: now you know speaking about the kind of control issues in, in the government you know one of the uh, uh, you do talk about it the um, pyramid scheme that okay. uh, Romania and of course uh, a very, wrote, wrote, wrote a uh, lovely piece about that. You know, when I was in Poland in, seven, in 85, in the second, well actually it was spring of 86, I believe, there was a pyramid scheme going on. I
1: wasn't aware of that. but well, I, I've never I, heard I, anyone
0: talk about it,
1: but I was there. And these, not, uh uh, that would be under communism. But pyramid schemes are everywhere. I mean, uh, I don't get them anymore, but I used to get these letters every now and then. You know, pass this letter on to 20 people, put a dollar in, and so eventually you'll get uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, they've, they've always been around. And of course, in the United States, every, every other week you read about some new guy arrested for a 56 million dollar pyramid scheme of some kind or another. So they exist everywhere, but uh, they were particularly damaging, I think, in these new economies because people didn't understand what a market economy was, and this seemed to be creating money out of nothing. And, uh, in fact, it was creating money out of nothing, but it gave the whole... Idea of a market economy of bad name, especially in the Albania or other situations, the most extreme.
0: Well, yeah, I think, well, it's an int- it was an interesting connection because in many ways people, perhaps because of what they've been taught in school, understood investment as basically money for nothing. <laughs> uh, and so that you ran into the, you know, uh, I won't, speak about the Polish case again I, I've i just been struck by that and, and wondered about that as a, a sign of deterioro- another sign that was there in 85 of the deterioration of, of the order uh, that was well, there be- beneath the
1: surface and you know uh, but, of course you know, in get- Poland in 1985 you're in the midst of uh, the process that leads eventually to the round tables so and after the 10 million Poles became members of Solidarity in 1980 and 1981, there are left a lot of people who had a new sense. And, of course, with the Pope's visits and occasional visits Mm -hmm. to Poland, too, gave them a whole different vocabulary and and, and positive way of looking at the world. So that uh, Poland was more open to those kinds of things and Poland uh, even western analysts thought by 1987 Poland was by far the freest country in eastern europe
0: oh yeah i think it, it definitely was and you had you know signs of that ever, everywhere i remember visiting in the spring of 88 right before the strikes the first wave of strikes that hit that spring uh, being struck by you know what people were talking openly about a friend uh, a friend of mine uh, was, you know, read me a little piece from what was the economic newspaper of the time. I've forgotten what it was called. And, uh, staking, you know, there's no question that we're going to be a free market economy, whether it happens well, That this. Pat McKinney has a
1: whole book about that, the Carnival of Re- uh, Carnival, a terrific the Carnival of Revolution.
0: Oh, it is an excellent book. I think it's actually available on, on the, uh, on our site. I think. It, yes,
1: it is. You can uh,
0: listen to yeah. an interview with him. Uh, but yeah, I mean, but I was talking specifically about this article that was, uh, I was, I was telling me, you know, that Poland is going to be free. We can only go to a free market economy. And I've uh, the one reading, and I think you to some extent talk about this of the 1987 referendum on the economy that uh-huh. Jaroszewski put forward. Is a reading of it, uh, of just trying to buy legitimacy, which was kind of a no lose situation for him. If they went with it, then. Yes. And if, he if no, he could say, well, this is the economy is going to go get worse. Uh, and it's not my fault. That's uh, right. And there is a certain element of, uh, I mean, I, th- I think we may come to compare Jaroszelski to Napoleon the third as, uh, <laughs> someone, uh, quite flawed. Uh, not uh, but who in in a, a variety of ways including you know the use of a referendum uh, to sort of shape things and or prepare people for a real uh, some, uh, democracy of the
1: government declared that that referendum had failed even right. though it appeared on the outside that it had passed because of the number of or percentage of voters right yeah that had, had to re- it had it shocked everybody yeah. let's they faked it Elections before, and why not this one? Right.
0: No, well, I think it was, there was a change. And there was a, I don't know, do you, have you ever met, uh, Piotr Vruble? No. Well, he's a professor now at Toronto. Uh, but he had just come, he was, uh, in 89, he was a visiting professor at the University of Michigan when I was there. And he talked about his father had been in the army, uh, and the shot, and it dutifully carried out the post solidarity repression. And how shocked the army was, at how poorly run everything was <laughs> afterward. Uh, which is another side of that. There was a realization there that uh, even you know, even
1: in that moment, was shocked. Well, I people. would like to go back and make uh, another comment about the post nineteen eighty nine Eastern Europe. and that is that often uh, Western observers, if you if you live in Poland or in Bulgaria or Romania. And are caught up in the daily politics. It's vicious. I mean, it's 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 really hardball politics, and it's easy to get discouraged and and everything. But what I think the Eastern Europeans didn't realize when they thought they wanted democracy. For them, I think, in nineteen late 80s, 1980s, democracy is just a word. It's something that was good. It went with the west. It was something we should have. But what they didn't realize was that democracy means warfare, you know, contest, and that there are going to be uh, vicious infighting and there's going to be unreasonable people. There's going to be cheaters. There's going to be all kinds of, controversy and setbacks, but this is normal. Mm-hmm. If if you look at the history of the emergence of democratic government in the United States or in France or England or, well, for heaven's sakes, Germany, it's been a tough process. And we tend to forget that, for example, in the United States, okay, our revolution started in 1776, but it, it didn't really deal with slavery till 1860, sixties, sixty-five, and not actually until the 1960s. Right. Sir. So, so these things take a long time, and they're not easy. Twenty years is one generation. It's still not enough. You could say the same thing. The Glorious Revolution took place in England, 1688. But the Great Reform Bill didn't come until eighteen 18- 32 and women didn't get the vote till the 20th century. So these, these things take time and I believe they're on a good good track. The same could be said for the economy. We, often we intend to judge others on an ideal of what the market system and capitalism should be like sort of the Protestant ethic ideal. I mean, you should uh, be a good steward. You should work hard. You should save money. should reinvest. And that what we forget is that capitalism was also built on slave trading, cheating the public, working people to death, and so forth. And the, the amazing thing is not that such kinds of entrepreneurs will cheat and rob and what have you. Exist, they did, they have existed, they do exist, they always will exist, but that stable systems have been built up around them anyway. Mm-hmm. So that if we speak about corruption in Romania and Bulgaria, yes, it's a big, big problem. And I don't know how long it's going to take, probably not in my lifetime to ameliorate, never solve but at least ameliorate those issues. But they are not on a dead-end track. Communism, centralized planning was a dead-end track. Fascism, Nazism was a dead-end track. Pluralism is not. It's an open-ended track. And we don't know what's going to happen or what setbacks there will be. But they're on that open-ended track so that there is potential there is opportunity and they are going to do something, not shoot themselves in the foot unless of course in a, unless of course the European Union should collapse, I don't think it will uh, because the European Union provides a constant pressure to keep the pluralistic system alive.
0: Well that's a, a a rather optimistic even if a you know, quest big question mark hangs over the union
1: at the moment, a uh, way to
0: end our talk. Uh yes. Question marks
1: have hung over the union often in the past and they have found they have found ways around them. Yeah. And uh, I, I suspect they will in the future, which means of course it'll collapse tomorrow. But I mean I <laughs> you know, I think I think uh I think the European Union is the greatest political invention of modern times and whatever failures or faults it may have, and it has, it has many, it has one overriding positive thing that outweighs everything else. Since 1945, the great powers of Europe have not been at war. In the previous 30 years from 1914 to 1945, Fifty million Europeans and Russian Soviets lost their lives and the economies were destroyed. Since nineteen seventy five, nobody outside of the former Yugoslavia has lost their life through warfare. And that is a phenomenal overriding positive accomplishment. It Certainly is.
0: A uh, question, uh, you know, again, ending on a positive note for the future. Uh, but, uh, you know, you mentioned that you are a, a professor emeritus now, but uh, do you have any other projects you're looking towards doing
1: now? Well, this was, a, this was a big one, and I'm happy to get it done, and, and I'm, I'm really not quite sure what the future might hold.
0: I thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure
1: talking to you. My pleasure, too.
0: You have been listening to new books in Eastern European Studies. I'm your host, Hugo Lane, wishing you the best and hoping you'll join us again next week. Bye-bye.